Hello, and welcome back to Europe Listens. It's great to have you join us again. I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. And I'm Jana Pulierin, head of ECFR's Berlin office. Today on Europe Listens, we're facing the rapidly rising tide of online disinformation. From conspiracy theories during the COVID pandemic, to false claims that the US election was stolen, to fake news pervading electoral landscapes from Nigeria to Bosnia and Herzegovina. Disinformation has become a global industry and a significant threat to peace, security and democracy. And as advances in artificial intelligence and virtual reality threaten to further blur the lines between fact and fiction, the means to poison public discourse with untruth are only getting more numerous and effective. As technology leaps ahead, some regulators are attempting to keep pace. The EU's Digital Services Act, which entered into force in November 2022, sets new responsibilities for online platforms and search engines to mitigate against disinformation. And in Brazil, where the 2022 election was battered by wild rumors, lies and smears online, legislators are now on a mission to regulate digital falsehoods and hold big tech to account. To hear more about what's happening in Brazil, we are delighted to welcome to the show Flora Rebello Arduini, an international human rights law expert specialized in the threat of disinformation on social media. Flora's work takes in developments around the globe, but she has a particular focus on Brazil, where she was born and raised, and on Latin America more widely. As campaigns director at ECHO, a non-profit global organization, Flora manages the Latin America Corporate Accountability Program and leads strategic advocacy projects on international big tech regulation. In 2018, Flora created a methodology using open source intelligence tools to map the networks that create and amplify disinformation and hate speech online. These investigations have been widely cited, including by the European Commission and the United Nations. Most recently, Flora spoke at the Nobel Prize Summit on truth, trust and hope, addressing widespread disinformation in Brazil and the legislative efforts to regulate online content. So, Flora, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Europe Listens. Thank you so much for having me. Flora, perhaps we can begin with you setting the disinformation scene for us in Brazil. When did you first really start to notice fake news and how big is the problem today? So that's a great question. In 2018, there was the very first very contentious elections in Brazil for a very long time in the history of the country. In 2018 was the first time a far-right candidate had real good chances of winning a democratic elections in the country against a left candidate, which at the time was chosen by Lula, which is a left candidate and an extremely popular leader in Brazil. In 2018, Bolsonaro, which was the far-right candidate at the time, really weaponized social media platforms for the gain and for its political campaign. It was the first time, for example, that a presidential candidate never went to a TV public debate. He only did all his entire candidacy campaign on social media platforms. At that point, it was a completely novelty for society, for authorities. In, that, in 2018, what we saw was that Bolsonaro and the far right were deploying techniques and methodologies 
that were used in the 2016 elections in the US. And so that was the first time where we could see the landscape of social media in, in the country really completely changed with this new weaponization of the platforms. And so unfortunately, since then, it hasn't changed much in terms of the seriousness of the disinformation issue in the country because it has been, it just became a new ways of working from the far right in the country in order to make sure that their agenda was the most popular and the most listened between the Brazilian citizens. And what were the kinds of narratives that were weaponized in this effort in the 2018 election, but also since? So, for example, one specific topic was religion. We saw religion being weaponized as a discourse, as a political discourse. In Brazil, we have to understand that over 89% of the population believe in God. So it's a highly uh, religious country. And so 30% of the Brazilian Congress is composed by what they call the evangelical front, which is evangelicals that put the evangelic agenda in Congress. And so it's a highly um, religious country. And since then, religion has become one of the key and core disinformation discourses in the country. The communist overpowering Brazil is a very common, for example, narrative used by the far right. If you do this, if you let this law happen, the Brazil will become uh, a communist country or the left will close the churches, which is one of the most common and most disseminated disinformation spread by the far right. So you saw disinformation on the religious side and you also one that it's extremely Unfortunately, the divisive topic is indigenous rights and climate change, for example. So those, those are the two that also compose the landscape. So these evangelical groups, are they also complicit in the disinformation campaigns? Do they actually contribute? Absolutely. If you look at the landscape of who were mostly promoting and who were financing, because when you talk about disinformation campaigns, it's, impo it's important for us to realize that campaigns means money is behind this, right? So in the 2018, to give a very practical example, while the civil society and authorities were trying to understand what to do with the situation, with the infodemic percolating the Brazilian elections at the time, I set up a methodology that was only based on online and public tools And I managed to map a network that was spreading disinformation and hate speech. Looking closely to that network, which was then composed by over 80 pages on Facebook and etc., gathered millions of interactions every day, more than popular stars such as Madonna, Neymar. It was a massive network. That network was then found out to be financed by one MP that was part of the Bolsonaro's party. And so when you see that there is money involved, there is usually, obviously, with a specific um, agenda, which was the political gain, you could see that that was being almost officialized in the public apparatus. Another element that is might be relevant for our listeners to know is that there was established what they were called, authorities found out, the hate cabinet. So within the presidential palace, there was a room of specific people creating content to spread hate speech and disinformation from within the government. And this is under investigation still, obviously, but it opened up, you know, the Pandora box of how much that was a state-sponsored campaign. And obviously being very smart and understanding the society, they could figure out which topics will make people more engaged and will make people more likely 
to believe and then bite their agenda. I'm curious about the balance between right-wing and left-wing fake news agendas, but also about whether there's a gendered or racialized component to this. Unfortunately, I guess if you ask across the road, which are the people who are most targeted by disinformation and hate speech, they're usually women and usually people of color. And then when you have politicians, for example, that are women of color, you can ask um, the potential um, threats that these people will receive online. And so there's absolutely a gender-based disinformation landscape happening in Brazil. The last elections, we had a huge increase of indigenous people, of black women, transgender um, MPs and senators in Brazil. So in a way, the Congress, it is more diverse. And that automatically brought up also the targeted disinformation and hate speech against them. And so, yes, we can say that, unfortunately, women are still one of the biggest targets of disinformation. And obviously, it's always very misogynist and always very sexualized. One horrible example that we can put in place is around the 2018 elections, which continue throughout the years in Bolsonaro's presidential candidacy, one of the journalists found out about the hate cabinet, he found out about the entire disinformation campaign working for this candidate. And ever since, she became a target of the far right in Brazil. And you had content spreaded online for straightforward lies that she was being financed by the left. And also, she started showing up in porn uh, websites. So using her image in collage of her image on extremely disturbing situations and sexualized situations. And so that was one of, let's just say, one of the most horrific examples that we had in Brazil. And then if you compare, the reason why I say so much about the far right is not because I have a specific political leaning, specifically because I look only to the far right. When I conduct research, no matter what organization I'm working for, when we go and we do a research and investigation online on social media, we have to be as neutral as possible. It's our obligation as a researcher, as a serious investigators. So what we try to do is mimic the regular experience a user will have, right? So we put keywords, we try to use generic keywords to see, for example, what the social media will recommend to you. We try to see which ads show up with a specific keyword. And unfortunately, the massive amount of the contents that are disturbing, that are problematic, are from the far-right narrative. I'm not saying the left doesn't use this as a technique, obviously does. But when we say, what are the landscape of this information, it is linked towards the far-right using this as a weapon of destabilizing democracy in the country. Flora, I would like to go back to something that you said at the very beginning of our podcast, because you were mentioning the election of Donald Trump in 2016. There is another comparison that observers often make, and that's the storming of Brasilia in January of this year and the storming of the US Capitol in January 2021. Do you see transnational right-wing extremism playing a role in this? Are there disinformation narratives that seep into Brazil from abroad, the US, for example? That's actually a really excellent question because let's just say the biggest benefits and the most pros of internet and social media is in fact this 
transnational, no boundaries, no borders in terms of information. You are absolutely able to capture and get informed by newspapers in India, in the US, in South Africa. So that's the beauty of it. But with that comes also the, one of the most biggest challenges, which is there are no boundaries to stop and block harmful narratives from abroad. So specifically about your question, Jana, if we see foreign interference in Brazil, there hasn't been yet such a finding. So when we talk about it, which is very common to see in the US, in the Brexit elections, for example, there was evidence of Russian foreign interference, state-sponsored Russian interference in these countries. We haven't seen such a similar pattern happening in Brazil just yet. On the other hand, which is concerning, is that you see imports of the narratives that are working, like really in a big caveat, working for specific candidates from outside of the country. So the U.S. has been one of the biggest inspirations for the far right in Brazil. So when you see the techniques used by the far right in Brazil since 2018, it has been an almost copy and paste of what happened. So when we were conducting researches during the presidential elections in Brazil last year, which went through August and January this year, we were calling Stop the Steel 2.0 because it was exactly that. It was almost as a guideline. We knew all the steps. We knew all the narratives. We knew all the tactics that those people would use during the elections. It was no surprise, unfortunately, the attacks in Brasilia in January 8th this year were not a surprise in terms of possibilities and likelihood of happening because we've seen all the steps being laid out in front of us. So when the Brazilian attack happened, it was obviously a shock, but we, it was a, an expected outcome of the elections. There is also one of the reasons why the presidential candidate who lost the election, he immediately flew the country because there was already in place an entire scheme for the attacks on January the 8th. And so the answer, the quick answer is yes, absolutely. What we see happening in Brazil is probably going to be weaponized also in other Latin American countries and also will be replicated by and from the US. And so this is one of the biggest challenges of the internet right now. And one of the interesting aspects of it is that when the far right in Brazil imported, let's just say, the stop the steal tactic from the Trump administration, they didn't just copy and paste in a silly way. They nationalized the tactics. So they really knew how to translate those tactics to the Brazilian context. And that's why they make it so powerful. You know what are common instincts, the common psychology of humans. So one basic one is the most controversial the topic is, the more likelihood it is for you to click. But you're not going to talk about, for example, an issue that is not close to the heart of Brazilians. You make sure to craft a specific topic that would then engage Brazilians to interact with that information. That's really fascinating. I wasn't aware that this was such a blueprint for Brazil's experience after the election. Flora, moving now from this vast problem to possible solutions. Brazil is advancing legislation to regulate online content. Can you tell us more about these laws? Yes. Happily, we now have in place two great draft bills. One of the draft bills has been nicknamed as the fake news bill. And the other one is the AI Act. So 
talking first about the AI Act. The AI Act in Brazil has been on debate for years now, almost the same period as the European Union has been debating this. So I'm just mentioning this because it's also beautiful to see a global South country taking on one of the leadership roles in regulating one of the most challenging industries. So the AI Act has had an interesting story in Congress. It was being fast-tracked, it was going to pass very easily thanks to the big tech lobby, and it was a very watered-down bill. But jurists and experts uh, in Brazil came together and showed to Congress how the bill would be too weak and needed to be strengthened. And this over 20 experts over the course of several years came up with a new tax that is now being debated in Congress. There is not a specific timeline of when that bill will be voted because as you can imagine, there are many challenges that are taking priority in the Congress right now. But this bill of the AI Act is really interesting because it takes what we call risk-based approach. So the platforms, the companies that are developing or have already developed technologies around artificial intelligence, they will have to define what is a super high risk technology, what are the mitigations that they have to put in place in order to safeguard citizens, and what are the risks that are simply unacceptable to be taken. And so the AI Act in Brazil as it is now, which we will be <laughs> really fighting so that it keeps strong as a tax, puts Brazilian human rights at the center of the bill. And right now, one other very interesting element of this AI Act is that it takes a specific instance in the Brazilian context, which is analyzing what are the most marginalized and vulnerable communities and social issues and problems that permeate the society. So very specifically, the companies will have to take actions to make sure that they are not fooling or perpetuating racism in their algorithms, that they are not perpetuating biased algorithms that will increase the inequality that this specific group is suffering. And so we have the, the AI Act, and on the other hand, we have the so-called fake news bill, which is under a very intense debate. So if we look at the history of this bill, it has been put into vote since 2019, since 2020, but it was a very weak bill, let's be very honest. However, <laughs> since this year, after the Brasilia attacks, and I'm not sure how much that was publicized outside Brazil, but we had a huge increase of school attacks in the country, either by guns and by knife. And when authorities look into it and the media look into it, we could realize that the attacks were either promoted or fueled on social media. So those are two pivotal moments in the story of this bill because it really showed the authorities that they had to step up, right? They really needed to regulate the industry. So the fake news bill in Brazil right now, it's really based on the DSA, the Digital Services Act passed by the European Union. And so the Digital Services Act really served as a massive blueprint for the fake news bill in Brazil. So you have three main pillars of the fake news bill in Brazil, which is the due diligence. So the obligation of the companies, of the social media companies to assess the risks that their software and products will have its impacts on citizens. You have an increased transparency requirement from the companies, such as they will be obliged to be run audits every year 
issue transparency reports on a yearly basis, more information about who is running and who are paying for ads on the platforms. And another pillar that I think it's one of the crucial ones in this bill is liability. So social media companies that are promoting and basically content that they're making money off, so promoting through ads or from promoting through their algorithms that are disinformation and hate speech, they might be liable for fines on the content that it's being promoted. And so those are the three pillars. We surely have a few challenges, but overall as a bill, because it was inspired by the successful legislation DSA, we can say it's a very robust legislation. On this new requirement to find and remove disinformation and hate speech, does the bill stipulate the criteria by which the companies should establish fact from fiction? And if I may add, how do the big tech companies respond so far? Because, I mean, they need to comply. Uh, are they willing to do this? On the first part of the question, no, the bill does not go into what is considered disinformation and what is considered hate speech, which I think is good, right? Because we don't want the so-called minister of truth or we don't want specific guidelines that can be easily bypassed or can be easily outdated in a few months. And so it just gives you broad context in terms of disinformation. And so disinformation is just basically false information with the intent to cause harm. Hate speech is what is defined in the criminal code in the country. So it, it doesn't try to create further descriptions or definitions. It drinks a lot from other legislations that we already have in place in the country. So the answer is no. And just wrap up for, to your point, this has been one of the critical topics of disinformation from the far right. And from the tech industry itself, which is saying that the bill will create the so-called Ministry of Truth, and that it's not true. It is a lie. There is not such an intent from this bill to create a, a body that will define what stays online and what it doesn't. There is not such an obligation on the bill. And to respond to John's question, that is absolutely one of the things that as a researcher, as a human rights expert, has been one of the most problematic issues throughout the debate of this bill, which is the role of the big tech platforms in the context of the fake news bill. They have been caught red-handed using their own economic power to spread information and influencing Congress debates to water down the bill. So let me just give you two practical examples. The bill was supposed to be voted, let's just say about a month ago. The days before the vote, Google, Meta, Spotify, what they did was they placed ads on their own platforms, spreading information of how that bill will make their internet worse for Brazilians, using arguments that you can debate it's democratic, but it's not what they were debating, it's how they were using their economic power. So one concrete example, the day before the vote, if you open up the Google page in Brazil, you will have, you know, the search bar? Right below it, you had one sentence with a link saying, this bill will make your internet worse. A click and you will be taken to a blog by Google's Brazil president. So that was a specific occasion, for example, of abuse of economic power. Another example is Spotify says in terms and policies that does not allow political ads. And if you're a premium user, you're supposedly not 
be interrupted in your experience by ads. They violated their both policies. If you are a premium user, you could actually be interrupted by an ad by Google. It says that your your the bill would make the internet worse, even though in theory it's a political ad and was not allowed on the platform. A third example is that Meta simply bombarded users with ads about the bill and saying how the bill was going to make the internet worse without labeling as a political ad. So you could see them bypassing their own terms and conditions, using their monopolies, using their incredibly market power to promote a specific agenda. Another example is that a group of lobbyists from the big tech was caught red-handed spreading disinformation, literally booklets, to evangelic MPs in Congress about how the bill would curb the rights and religious freedom in the country. So I'm not sure how much has this been uh, spoken on the media outside Brazil, but it's now the object of a huge and massive investigation because one thing is the healthy and important debate from the private sector, the public sector and society to talk about and debate about a bill. The other one is break consumer laws, break its own terms and services, and trying to disrupt the democratic debate that is happening in Brazil. So Brazil is one of the biggest markets for Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. For example, Brazil is often on the top four countries that use those platforms. So on WhatsApp, Brazil is the second country just behind India. So it is a market, what they say, worth fighting for, right? It has a huge revenue in ads for these platforms as well. And because Brazil is such an important country in Latin America, it is expected that whatever legislation the country passes will serve as a blueprint for the rest of the region. And so they are using all they can in terms of lobby to stop the bill from being a strong and robust bill that will touch upon their business model, which is the ads and target ads and political ads. Wow, I for one was not aware of all of this. Going back to Europe for a moment, you mentioned earlier, Flora, the EU Digital Services Act as some sort of precedent for the fake news bill and as something that helped to advance the debate in Brazil. I'd be curious now to learn how you more broadly perceive Europe's role and responsibilities in the fight to combat disinformation and to regulate big tech. Is there anything that you find particularly inspiring in Europe's approach? Do you see any blind spots? And what can Europeans do to help your fight in Brazil to counter disinformation? When we look about the role of, the, of Europe, it is a beacon of light and beacon of hope when we think about the freedom and human rights exercised by citizens in the world right now, right? So Europe has a huge responsibility as a, such an important economic foreign actor and its role cannot be understated. So we are seeing that what happens in Europe, it serves as a blueprint around the world. We've been seeing this for hundreds of years and it's not different now. So 
one great example is indeed the Digital Services Act, who is being inspiring several legislations around the world. In terms of blind spots of Europe, I think there is still a huge blind spot in terms of equity of citizens. So we are still seeing most of the European representatives, right, in Parliament, as you say, in the, within the European bureaucratic system, we're still being, seeing that most of it, it's our white Europeans, right? And now we're seeing such a diverse <laughs> community in Europe that should be more representative of its population. One blind spot, for example, is that the AI Act that has just been, has great elements, it is really important legislation, let's just not fall focus on the bad things, obviously. It brings it, again, it will be huge important blueprint from around the road. But when you ask me one of the blind spots of this AI Act, it's for instance that it differentiates surveillance AI, so surveillance cameras of European citizens and those migrants and asylum seekers at the borders. So there is this differentiation that you cannot use, for example, surveillance technology in public spaces in Europe, but if you're an asylum seeker or a migrant at the border and a refugee, you're going to be treated differently. And so we know one of the pillars of the human rights in Europe is indeed to treat every citizen equally. And we are not necessarily seeing this being translated into the AI Act, for example. So I think as every country in the world, we have to see more diversity. We have to be uh, more proactive in making sure that we are not perpetuating oppressive systems and oppressive laws that will keep putting and marginalizing historic marginalized groups and vulnerable groups as well. We also cannot distinguish between refugees, asylum seekers that come from a white European country and those who come from, for example, from the north of Africa. Everyone should be treated equally. And unfortunately, we are still seeing a very much big differentiated treatment among citizens depending on the color of their skin or where there is the cultural background. And I think in terms of what Europe can be doing to support Brazil, genuinely, these kind of conversations, these kind of podcasts are so important because you show to the world a little glimpse of what's happening outside the block. And I do think this is one of the initiatives we should really try to publicize and expand across the European Union bodies, initiatives, and uh, surely this is something that is important. People do want to know more. We know people are eager to get information. So for a first, this is a great initiative, but more policy-wise speaking, one of the things that it would be great is having more interaction between authorities and bodies of the European Union and let's just say Global South. So very specifically, the stance that European Union is taking on how European data is being used by Silicon Valley companies, for example, how the authorities in Europe are really trying to make sure that the companies based in the US are treating European citizens data according to the European law, that's an excellent example that should be transported across the Atlantic. So I do think more initiatives of interaction and exchange between authorities, between bodies, and keep passing and keep at the forefront in the leadership of passing important laws such as the DSA, such as the Digital Markets Act, the AI Act. So this is very important. And one of the things that I always try when I have conversation with policymakers in Europe is try also engage with 
policymakers and activists in the global south because that might give you a glimpse of how this legislation can be even broader and in even more inclusive because it will be taken as a blueprint internationally so why not make listen and get inspired as well of what EU legislation can actually support other countries as well. Thank you for this very powerful call to action, Flora. Finally, moving beyond legislative measures, what do you see as the greatest pillars against disinformation, particularly with the vast new fake news opportunities via things like generative AI? That's the $1 million question to end <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and this is this is a great question, and it's a good provocation because we cannot just stay still and fixated in one idea because it's such a dynamic and ever-changing landscape that, as activists, that policymakers, everyone should really be exercising this every day, basically. So we are not stuck into old ideas, but we do know that generative AI, such as ChatGPT what they call large language models, which is the technology behind ChatGPTs, for example, are a massive possibility for the scaling up this information. There are really serious problems with the safety and safeguards that these technologies hold. So to speak about the hope <laughs> and to speak about practical examples, so I think number one, we already spoken, which is regulation. We have to make sure regulations are passed because if we leave companies, private entities to self-regulate, they will put profit before people. This is basically the premise of having a business is to do profit. And so we cannot let this be the main motivator of companies. We know that our no companies are the same, but when I'm talking about companies, I'm talking about the big ones. I'm talking about the Microsofts, the Meta, the Googles, and etc. So you have to regulate to make sure the citizens' rights are at the center of the regulation. Second of all, I do think digital literacy is an incredible, powerful pillar. We are already outdated <laughs> from yesterday's technologies. So how can we make sure that governments put in place public policies to provide its citizens the digital literacy, to enable them, to empower them to one, seek information, understand social media platforms. For example, in Brazil and Latin America, social media is the main source of information. 80% of Brazilians look at WhatsApp as their main source of information. So you can see how much in many countries, social media is the internet in itself. And so we need to empower citizens, youngsters, to really understand and how to navigate social media platforms and the internet. So that can go from looking at reliable sources, how to triangulate information, how to use technologies, making sure also from a democratic perspective that you make it equally. Not everyone has the same access to technology. Not everyone has the same access to education. So making sure that this is democratic indeed and provide this digital literacy to everyone. So this is something that should be on public schools policies, for example. So those I think are the two main pillars that we have to take into consideration. And the third one, which is disinformation is a huge problem, but the best antidote is quality information. So journalism, I do think it's one of the most important pillars. So regulation, digital literacy and media independent and autonomous media is something that we have to make sure that is still 
you know, one of the biggest pillars of our democracies. And um, we've seen the industry suffering a huge challenge in terms of business model, but we have to figure out as a society. And unfortunately, I don't have one answer how to do this, but we have to make sure that our media across the world is kept independent and autonomous. They are the fourth power of democracies. So we have to make sure that they keep producing quality content as well. Thank you so much, Flora. Unfortunately, we've already reached the end of our podcast, but it was super great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Europe Listens is brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations and supported by Stiftung Mercator. Our producer is Eliza Epperle. Project coordination by Angela Mera. Sound design and editing by Benjamin Nash. <laughs>